Welcome back to another episode of the PigX Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney Howell. Today's episode is focused on a very important topic to our breeding system, guilt eligibility and cell longevity. I'm joined by two industry guests who know a thing or two on the topic. Jennifer Patterson, a research associate at the University of Alberta in Canada, along with Matt Ramosier, a swine extension specialist at Iowa State University, have spent years researching and developing the framework for this very important topic. Cell longevity is a huge subject, but one that really starts from birth. Let's turn it over to Jennifer to share a bit more background and get us in the right mindset for framing today's conversation. So when you think of why cell longevity is important, it's because it's an important component of cell lifetime productivity. And cell lifetime productivity has several key components, and those being longevity, so how long she remains in the herd, um, productivity, how many pigs she produces in her lifetime, and fertility, so the efficiency of she in achieving those targets. But when you think of cell lifetime productivity, we really think that gilts are the basis of that. So gilt foundation, they're the foundation of good production, and they drive farm production now and in the future. And we believe that guilt management starts at birth and selecting guilt, the best guilt, and setting them up for their lifetime is really a key component to maximizing longevity and maximizing the productivity during their lifetime. So you mentioned that it really starts for guilts at birth. What are some things to think about right away when you're thinking about breeding for that next generation of sows since it does start at birth or maybe even before birth in some instances? No, exactly. When we think about birth or the management at birth, there's a lot of great data showing that low birth weight really is a risk for pre-mortality, poor growth, and lower retention until final selection. So it is a measure of and drive cell lifetime productivity. One thing that was really important at birth is that post-fairing management or day one care, and that includes colostrum intake, cross-fostering, and weaning age. So when you look then at why cell longevity and retention are important, that seems like an easy answer, but I think it goes a lot deeper than that. Yes, exactly. Longevity and re- retention is really important because it really ultimately it's a function of um, the number of pigs weaned per sow per year. It's a really key driver in our industry. So Matt and Jennifer, as you look at research that's been done leading up until this point, talk to us about some of the background of what research has been done so far and what research led to believing that really it starts from day one when guilts are born? That's a good question, Delaney. And I think a lot of it, I know a lot of it has come out of Jenny's group and and the work that her and George have done uh, as far as looking at low birth weight and low birth weight phenotypes. I think other research in that area that would support a lot of that, you know, just as far as that prenatal growth, and obviously a a low birth weight pig is probably physiologically stunted in several aspects, whether that animal's uh, organs are underdeveloped when that one, when that animal is born, or what that pre-weaning, post-birth or postnatal environment's like, much like what Jenny just alluded to as far as colostrum intake, competition within the litter, and how much pre-weaning growth that that animal gets. There's a lot of those things that really sets up that physiological development of that reproductive tract starts very early in life. So a lot of the research that's been done in that space just is understanding how impactful and how critical those first 24, 48 hours 
or even first three weeks of life for that guilt uh, can be very impactful. And I, I know that Jenny's group's been done has done extensive research as far as uh, looking at low birth weight pigs and how that impacts longevity. And just a quick follow up too. Um, work out of our group. We have shown, and it's very consistent across the literature, there's great work out of the Dr. Bortoloso's lab and, and Dr. Billy Flower's lab as well. But gilts with a birth weight about less than a kilogram, they have higher mortality and, and fewer of them will actually be selected to enter the gilt herd. And if they actually make it into production, their longevity will be less than gilts heavier than that at birth. So when you're thinking about selecting gilts for parity, do you want to look at those factors that happened during the first 24 to 48 hours of their life to help select gilts for parity? I think there's a lot of things that a person who's managing multiplication or is managing a farm that's making replacements, I think there's lots of things that they can do to consider. Obviously, like what we've been discussing here, looking at birth weight is an important phenotype to be able to, to keep track of. But also, you know, just keeping track of those gilts that are maybe are born below a kilogram are obviously ones that can pretty quickly be written off as non-replacement candidates. And then uh, doing just various management strategies to try to normalize, you know, that lactation environment or that nursing environment for those young pigs. So whether that be trying to cross foster and make sure that pigs have as good of a chance to grow and maximize that pre-weaning growth rate during that critical time or during the first couple of weeks of life. I think there's lots of things that just that Farron House manager can do if they're in a multiplication situation where they're making F1 females, I think there's lots of lots of things that, that can be done just to be able to maximize those pigs' chances to optimize growth, or even things like split suckling. You know, if a lot of these sows can certainly produce a lot of pigs, and oftentimes can produce more pigs than what they're equipped to be able to nurse. So, optimizing a split suckle protocol to be able to make sure those gilts for sure in the first couple hours or within the first 24 hours are getting enough colostrum intake can certainly help at least set them up or give them the best shot to be a successful replacement later on. What industry data is out there right now to talk about retention and loss rates between those two parities? So we look at current industry data and some of the what we're seeing in overall retention rates. I've had the pleasure to have opportunity to look at some of these data sets and with the large data set from PigChamp North America. And what we see, some of the challenges what we see is that about 30% of the females that are first served remain in the parity and into the herd to about six parities. What we see is that about 8 to 10% of these gilts do not fare parity one that were served. And this is really a function of farin rate. We also see that the typical loss between parity one and parity two range between about 14 to 19 percent, and the loss in subsequent parities range from about 10 to 13 percent. So what we see, and I think it's typical what we're seeing across industry, the opportunity in our industry right now is that loss between parity one and parity two. We're not converting those parity one females into parity two females. So it's that early loss of young females that really derives retention, loss of retention in, in that herd. We also see that of those females lost between parity one and parity two, about 70-ish percent is due to culling and about 30% is due to death and euthanasia. So although mortality is a huge concern in our industry right now, a lot of the loss is actually due to culling. So I think that's an opportunity for us to look at. And if we consider the top three reasons for 
loss between parity one and parity two. It's driven by reproduction reasons, a lot of calling for reproduction reasons, whether those are no heats, fail to return to esters or not in pig, uh, lameness and low productivity. So when you look at the industry standard, is there an industry standard or should there be when it comes to the number of parodies that we see a sow reach? I think some of the um, older research would show or some of the research shows that we'd like to see females make it to at least parity three. Once they reach that parity, they seem to remain in the herd. Um, but this is where the female becomes cost productive in her lifetime. I think that the, the typical thought across industry for many years now has been just what Jenny said, where it somewhere happens around parity three is when that replacement gilt starts to become a positive return on her investment. I think it's important for producers to recognize, you know, at the current situation where coal sow prices are low, feed sow costs are high, but also the type of sow that we have today versus the sow that we had 15, 20 years ago when a lot of the economics were kind of put together. The sow that we have today is significantly more prolific. So I think it's a little bit unsure of really where that break even is today on sows as far as we're weaning more pigs, but we're also doing it with a lot higher input costs and challenges right now with coal sow prices. But in general, I think the industry benchmark is to try to aim for that, get that sow to at least parity three and probably maintain a herd average parity. Typically, you'll see around three and a half for that herd average parity size. And as you mentioned, between parity one and parity two is where we see a big drop off of sows that are usually getting cold or euthanized. What's an industry target that we have right now to see that reduction from parity one to parity two? Do we have a goal in mind of how much we'd like to see that reduced by? I think that's, again, I think that's something that we really need to evaluate within our industry again. But some of the data would say about 10% loss per parity. And right now, I think we're, it looks like in, in some of the, the data, we're looking at as much as 14 to 19, 20% loss during that parity one to parity two period. We always say that guilt are the foundation of good production. So it starts by selecting guilt, right? That guilt eligibility component we talked about earlier, but setting guilt up right at service and meeting targets for weight at service and heat, no, heat at service is really a good component to set those guilts up right. So once they fare their first parity, they have a better chance of making it through that second parity or that first lactation. I don't think the guilt eligibility recommendations, I don't think those can be overstated enough as far as just making sure those, those guilts are in an optimal at an optimal age and an optimal weight and an optimal physiological state as far as body condition, heat, no service, physically mature. Um, I don't think it can be overstated enough of how much impact that can have on just retention, at least getting that south through that first litter. And I think what's really important is um, the guilt development unit and how we use the guilt development unit to set these guilts up so we hit those targets. Jennifer, since you mentioned guilt development unit, I think this is a good time to dive a bit deeper into that subject. So let's start a little bit with what is a guilt development unit? I think it's a specialized unit within the sow barn or, or any farm that really focuses on guilt development. And I think it's a really critical stage. So I think it's really important to put the time and effort there into that guilt development unit 
that's needed. We need specialized GDU staff. We need the proper time allocated to the guilt development unit. And I think those are all critical components, at least in that guilt development unit. Because just as the name suggests, it's the place that we can develop guilt and have specialized care during that important part in their life. Like what you what you say there, Jennifer, as far as having you know allocated staff uh, to the GDU. A lot of times you go on farms, and you know maybe it's the people who are in charge of running the gestation barn, or, or you know do routine heat checks, or running the bore. They're the person who's also in charge of of managing the GDU. And a lot of times I think it can become sort of a secondary activity for them because they've got so many other high value tasks to do in a day, especially if you're on a farm that's short on labor, you know, they've got to be able to find sows that are returning, you know, making breed targets. There's a lot of other high value tasks that happen during the day. And a lot of times I feel like guilt development becomes a second priority. So I really like what you state there. And just as far as having a, a specific labor force to to really prioritize getting those gilts off to right start and optimizing when they're going to be you know, entered into the herd. And I also think another key component of that in any guilt development unit, we have to provide them the tools to be successful, whether that's the, the setup in the guilt development unit so they can do puberty stimulation and heat detection correctly, making sure we have enough number of bores that are in the guilt development unit to, again, to be successful at that job. And another opportunity, I think, is how you manage it. So data becomes a really important part of that because it goes back to the old saying, if you if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. We're going to talk a little bit more later on in the episode about the idea that you can't manage what you don't measure. But for now, let's focus a little bit heavier here on guilt development success. There's really four main key components to make sure you're setting gilts up for success. So let's dive into those. I think the first one is age of puberty. We'd like to see gilts reach puberty by about 190 days of age, 190, 200 days of age. And this is going to enable us to get the next two targets, which is a weight at service and achieving a heat at service or having a heat note service. And the best thing we can do to get that first target of age at a puberty is to start puberty stimulation early. And that's one of the key drivers of the successful guilt development unit. When you think about the eligibility requirements, you know, if the, if the staff and employees are really doing a good job and, and are given the resources to really be successful, We've started boar exposure early. We've adequately conducted, you know, boar exposure to stimulate these gilts to come into heat by an appropriate age. And we've optimized growth rate to this point. The age at which they get bred, I think, becomes sort of a more of a checks and balances as far as trying to get them bred by 30 to 32 weeks. If we already have a documented HNS uh, well in advance of that, I think it really helps set up that gilt to be bred in an optimal body condition state and physiological state. And I also think that because weight is such a driver of retention. So when we're looking at targets for breeding, it's about 300 to 350 pounds, and that's the weight that we target. And that's really an important component of that longevity topic that we're talking about today. Those gilts that are bred heavier tend to have be removed out of the herd sooner. It could be due to feed, feed and leg problems, for example. And we have to remember, if they're bred heavier, they're going to be heavier during their productive lives. So it's also going to cost them more to feed as well. That's a that's a, a huge statement there, in, in my opinion, when you really think about because because I've I've been on farms in, in situations where you know a producer can pull up data and say they get their best litter size 
maybe when a sow is bred a little bit later. But I think when you think about what we were just discussing as far as what was the extra feed cost that it took to get to that sow to that age, and really that all that was non-productive days that were accumulated there, and then what are the downstream effects of putting on that extra weight in that time point? I know we mentioned lameness, but also just as far as what's her lactation performance, if she's a little extra over-conditioned at the time of breeding, and how do we manage that? What's the structural conformation and stability? And then, like you said, heavier throughout their productive life and ultimately become a more costly sow because of that, because they have a higher maintenance cost. And I also think it's really important, too, that we maybe need to start rethinking about what guilt management is. We talk a lot about hitting those targets for age of puberty, having a heat, no serve, weight of puberty, and that age component. But it just doesn't stop at that guilt first breeding. So maybe we need to reconsider what we view as guilt management. Maybe it's P1 development. So we need to know how many gilts actually farrow that first litter and also how many of those gilts farrow their second litter. So that, that key component of retention. And once we start doing that, we expand that P1 development phase, but I think it'll have really important positive effects on that retention and longevity as well as cell lifetime productivity. So there's pre-selection one, and then we get into pre-selection two. What differs between those two stages? Well, when you look at pre-selection one, that occurs about birth and at weaning. So many of the things we talked about before, yields should have a B above about a kilogram at birth. And we talked about before that post-fairing management, day one care is really important. But pre-selection two is a little bit later in life. It's about 140, 150 days of age. And this is prior to guilt entering that final selection stage, so that heat checking, that puberty stimulation phase. And I think it's really important if we have the number of gilts to have a higher selection criteria is to group or categorize gilts at entry into the gilt development unit. So we might want to simply set up standards that if gilts are growing less than 0.6 kilograms per day, or they have poor health, inadequate number of teeth, they have any defects or unthrifty, they're not permitted to enter that final selection stage. So the other group would probably be called prime gilts or pre-select gilts. So Having that selection phase right there, I think, is another kind of key component to set up gilts for the best future production. So I think the final selection stage, there's <laughs> several key components of this. Um, we need to have a purpose-designed gilt development program that facilitates both the stimulation and the detection of early puberty. Another key component of this is an earlier pubertal response. So we talked about that before, starting gilt puberty stimulation early. And this is linked to better cell lifetime productivity. And having an early pubertal response really controls weight of gilts when they're bred with at least one heat no serve. A key component of any final selection program or puberty stimulation program is that contact with boars. And boars are probably the most efficient way to stimulate puberty and gilts. We found in, in our research that direct contact is better than fence line contact. And I know it's a challenge with the industry to have direct contact. Generally, I think it's because of the, the labor component or the lack of labor within the gilt development units. And I think another really key component in a puberty stimulation program is having a consistent supply of mature, high libido and size appropriate gilts. And I think it's really one of the most unrecognized components of the gilt development unit. And it's often when you go into farms, you look at those the boars that are used within a gilt development unit, and often they're the 
the friendliest boars. They're a bit older. They're easy to move, but they're not necessarily good for puberty stimulation. So having boar replacement plan is also under-recognized. And I'd like to see new boars entering the guilt development unit at least on twice a year in the very minimum. I think when you talk about just puberty stimulation and getting that those guilts get a documented HNS, you know, much like what Jenny was saying, where there's a positive relationship between guilts that reach puberty earlier in life and their ability to remain in the herd. And I think that when you think about biology, I think that makes sense just because those guilts maybe naturally have a more sensitive or more active reproductive system, a one that's more sensitive to the endocrine changes than their specific to reproduction. So then I think when you look back at those those sows as they, you know, go through a, a lactation and then are asked to come back into heat in a timely manner, I think they're better set up or maybe they're just better equipped with a more active and more sensitive reproductive tract. So I think it's a, it's a, certainly a selection tool in that sense when we're talking about that final selection stage. Certainly, I think ones that come into heat earlier in their life, I think, is something that uh, producers really can lean on as a potential selector or one of one of the better selectors we have for finding those sows that have a better chance to be in the herd for a longer period of time. And then again, completely agree with that. And those later maturing females, and we've all seen them in our guilt development units, they're the ones that have been in there for weeks and weeks and weeks, if not months, that haven't had a recorded heat no serve, are sitting there. They're accumulating non-productive days. They're eating the feed and not productive. But we know those later maturing non-select females are going to have poor cell lifetime productivity. So exactly as Matt said, they're an opportunity to non-select at that point because you really don't even want them in the herd. So then as you move into that last component, which is really just guilt eligibility at mating, it sounds like there's four general recommendations to look for at that stage. So we believe that there are four key components of guilt eligibility, and they're just like four tires on a well-functioning car. Each of those are important for the proper development of that guilt. So the four key components are age of purity. We want to start puberty stimulation early enough, but at least about 170 days of age. And guilt should have recorded heat by about 200 days of age. And ester said breeding is another key component. We want to breed gilts on at least second detected estrus. And only delay to third asterisk to meet those minimum weight requirements. So third component is the weight at breeding. We want to breed gilts between about 135 to 160 kilograms and really avoid going beyond that. The last tire or the last key component is age at mating. And it really is a function of all the other factors. But generally, we want to see gilts bred by about 240 days of age because any older than that, they are likely overweight. And I think what we want when we think about this, too, we have to focus on the end, right? Start with the end in mind. So if we set these gilts up, we're focusing on improved efficiency and improved cell lifetime productivity over the productive lifetime. So as you think about starting with the end in mind, Jennifer, you really can't improve that end goal and manage it if you aren't measuring it. How do you measure guilt eligibility? I think that's a a huge opportunity within our industry. Again, you can't manage what you don't measure. And I think there's a lot of, we have piles and piles of data that, that come to us. I think some of the key components is to make sure that the data is recorded accurately. And I think this is one of the most important factors that makes the data usable. Because if you don't have good data or good inputs, it's hard to make good decisions out of that. 
And I think we can use the data that is collected on a daily basis that provides insight to provide to track reproductive success, and it really enables data-driven decision-making. And we have great data typically collected on the sow farms, but often in the gilt replacement unit, sometimes it's lacking. So I think there are some really important key data points that we can measure that are really important. We need to know birth dates, each gilt individually identified. We need to know dates of recorded heat no serve, weights at either first recorded heat no serve or at service, and a removal date and service date, and of course, all the production data. And I think these are really key data points that let us have some, deliver some key reports that really tracks the success of the gilt development unit. Yeah, I think especially when you're just thinking about understanding the age of these gilts and when to intervene if we're, you know, if we're in a situation where maybe we're not having as good of a response to boar exposure, you know, especially just going through and being able to identify sows that have already had one or gilts rather that have already had a, a heat no service. You know, some of the best farms I've seen it done, you know, whenever they just find a gilt in heat, she just gets a blank ear tag in her ear. That way anybody in the farm can identify that this one's had a heat no service. But also just being able to identify how old these gilts are and if there's maybe a, a lag in, in where we are in terms of getting gilts to respond, then we can come in with, you know, a different exogenous hormone or PG-600 uh, in order to be able to get that group uh, more up to speed. That way we're still optimizing their reproductive development at an age-appropriate time. And, in, and when we use products like PG-600, I think it's really important to really track those gilts as well, as, as Matt said, because PG-600 is supposed to be used on non-cyclic females. So by tagging gilts in the ear to know that they have a heat, those are gilts that you never give PG-600 to as well. When you look at measuring success of gilt development units, what are the factors that producers or swine system folks should be measuring and monitoring? Well, I would say retention rate is is a one of the primary things you can look at as far as whether your gilt development program is successful and is, you know, is progressing as it should be, trying to minimize your amount of involuntary calling or, or sows that are, are coming up with issues that would be out, outside of what we would classify as normal. I would say, obviously, a lot of times I think people lean on uh, what's their P1 total born or P1 born alive to dictate whether their GDU is performing at a high level, which obviously there's lots of factors that go into litter size. So I don't know that necessarily paints the whole picture, but I do think, you know, obviously how that guilt is fertility wise through parity one, how she is at, at rebounding after parity one and, and how successful she is at getting to P2 or P3, I think are all things that really encompass important factors when it comes to how successful the GDU is. And I think the only other thing I would add to that is the efficiency in doing that. So the accumulation of non-productive days, right? So we want gilts after they fare their first parity and are weaned, we want them come back into heat and successfully rebred and fare that second parity. But we also want to do that efficiently. So I think measure of non-productive days is another overall key component of successful gilt development unit. Matt, you just mentioned retention, which I think is a great time to segue into talking about troubleshooting. How do you go about troubleshooting low sow herd retention? Yeah, so especially when you think about, I think we mentioned them earlier, just some of the primary reasons of which sows are removed. Reproductive reasons kind of get lumped into the, the primary reason, but I think there's there's lots of different reproductive pitfalls that can be classified into that, whether it's ones that just simply don't conceive, don't get pregnant after their parity one, 
or or ones that don't recycle or don't come into heat, whether that's gilts or ones that are delayed to return to heat after farrowing. I think there's lots of different factors or different categories that we can lump that into and how we troubleshoot those is going to be different. Obviously, if we've got ones that don't come into heat timely, you know, I think we need to look at, you know, what's the body condition of those sows going into farrowing? Do we need to skip a heat? I think it's important to know, especially when we talk about sort of this P1 to P2 transition. This is really the first time that these sows are having to rebound from the most energy demanding part of their life that they've had to this point where they've had to deliver a litter of pigs and then nurse them for three weeks or, or potentially longer in some cases. You know, that's very high energy demanding and this is the first time that these sows are having to undergo that. So I think when we talk about how we manage them and how we set them up for success so we don't have a prolonged weaned asterisk interval or fail to returns, again, having that body condition in, in check before they go into farrowing understanding what their lactation feed intake is like and make sure that they're setting themselves up to be reproductively efficient following farrowing. What's that feed management like after weaning? So how are we in that three to four days when we're trying to get those gilts or those sows to come back into heat? How are we managing their calorie intake that way? So I think there's a couple different things we can look at from that standpoint, just as far as making sure we're setting those sows up to, to make it to P2 and be uh, as fertile as possible after that, that first weaning. Well, it's that time in our episode, listeners, where we have our guests share a few simple take-home messages. When, when we sit here and talk about guilt development, guilt retention, I think it's easy for us to sit here and converse about it. But I think the reality is, is, is it is it's challenging on farm. You know, it, there's there's only so much time in a day for employees to be able to execute it. And I think it's just really important to make sure that we're treating this as a priority. You know, when we talk about making sure a sow farm can sustain uh, some profitability, setting those gilts up to be your next generation of sows that are going to make up a, a large portion, obviously make up a large portion of your breeding herd. You know, they, they play a big, a big part in how profitable that farm can be. So I think it really warrants dedicating some time to gilt development and really making it a high, a high priority activity uh, for employees on farm, I think is, is a, a big thing. Well, that does it for another episode of the PigX podcast. But if you like what you're hearing, please take some time to rate and review us and go back and check out some of the older episodes from the first three seasons. Over the next few months, we'll be bringing you some special content from the Iowa Swine Day, in addition to more great information related to swine livability. So be sure to hit subscribe so you get notified when new episodes are released. Until next time, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been the PigX Podcast. PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project Partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org, or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu Big X Ideas in the swine industry worth sharing